0: And welcome to WISO Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. It's the program that's chock full of WISO-produced content. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us. We've got so much to bring you today. We're going to jump right in and bring you two stories dealing with some challenges surrounding food safety and security. Up first, when a tornado tore through Old North Dayton on Memorial Day, one of the buildings destroyed was the neighborhood's last affordable full-service grocery store. Eight months later, that family shop is still working to reopen, so the Neighborhood Association and a local ministry are offering residents free rides to the nearest supermarket. Reporter Jason Reynolds went shopping with them.
1: Our bus might yell at you. There's a safety feature on it, which is very noisy.
2: Ann Schaller is a little nervous about firing up the big van she's using to make a grocery store run from Old North Dayton.
1: Okay, we can only hope. Hee-haw!
2: Schaller belongs to Beaver Creek Christian Church, which is loaning out the vans for grocery runs. That's how she wound up volunteering to drive across town at 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday.
1: Zip code doesn't matter to us. There's a need here. We know how to drive the vans, and we could fulfill the need.
2: Bill Evans is a retired baker who has lived in Old North Dayton for over 50 years. These days, he volunteers with a number of charities, like St. Vincent de Paul, to help hungry people in his neighborhood find food.
3: I made a good living in food service, and I just don't want to see people go hungry.
2: Now, Evans is volunteering to drive people to the grocery store. I
3: mean, I can give you a Kroger gift card. I carry them all the time. I give you a $40, $50 Kroger gift card. Somebody wants $20 to take you to the grocery Because if you don't have transportation, the exchange rate on the street could be 20 bucks.
2: Angela Cottrell suffered a stroke, and public transportation isn't an option for her. Instead, she's one of those people, paying for rides.
3: Sometimes people charge me $15, some people charge me $20. One time I caught a cab up there, it was almost $40. Whoa. Because they make you wait, they still had a meter running uh, while you were in the store.
2: Mary Duncan has been taking public transportation to get groceries, but she says it takes a long time.
3: You have to be on that bus
4: 45 minutes to an hour each way, there and back.
2: Everyone is excited to buy fresh produce. They say it's hard to find reasonably priced fruits and vegetables since the storm. Anna Moreno says one of the worst parts of not having affordable, healthy food in the neighborhood is when she finds herself short on ingredients for a good family meal. Because
5: sometimes you cook, and so you're missing some tomatoes or onions, and so, oh my goodness, you need to step to the cook because you don't have tomatoes, and you need to go to the Walmart or at Kroger, it's too far away.
2: So you just do without? Yeah. On the ride back to Old North Dayton, Angela Cottrell says missing ingredients and even missing home meals is something the whole neighborhood has been struggling with since grocery lane was hit by a tornado, looted in the wake of the storm, and eventually boarded up.
3: Yeah, it's sickening. I, I'm really upset about that. I mean everybody went there. Cause they have fresh meat, fresh vegetables, a nice price and everything. So when they shut that down, it was everybody took a loss.
2: The good news is that the owners of Grocery Lane have decided to reopen. Repairs in the exterior of the store are almost done, but work has just begun on the interior, and a reopening could still be months away.
5: Well, thank you, Mr. Bill. you welcome. welcome.
2: Okay. The last stop on this morning's grocery run is Evans Bakery. Bill Evans retired years ago, but his daughter, Jennifer, decided to reopen the bakery that he started back in 1969. In addition to baking, Jennifer also seems to have inherited her father's desire to help people. She says they'll try to keep these grocery runs going for at least six months, by which time Grocery Lane should be reopened. Then they'll turn their attention to other food issues.
6: If we can get a grocery store back, then we can go back to focusing on those more systemic issues of just
1: healthy eating. I mean, right now we just want to make sure that people are eating and have access to any groceries.
2: For now, Evan says she hopes more people will take her up on a free ride to the grocery store. Those vans leave Old North Dayton every Saturday at 9 a.m. For WYSO News, I'm Jason Reynolds.
0: If you live in Old North Dayton and need a ride to the grocery store, the Neighborhood Association is asking residents to call 937-228-4151 to get more information and to make a reservation. Again, that's 937-228-4151. A coalition of Springfield groups is trying to stitch together a food safety net for thousands of people. On March 4th, the city's south side will become the region's newest food desert when the neighborhood's Kroger supermarket closes. WISO's Jason Saul talked with Clark County reporter Tom Stafford about the emergency. Welcome back, Tom. Glad to be here, Jason. So, Tom, set the scene for us. The Kroger's about to close is
6: in a distressed area of town. The USDA considers low income with low access to foods. It's three blocks from the largest concentration of public housing in the area, has higher concentration of minorities, and it serves census tracts with high levels of diabetes and heart disease. Not that long ago, Kroger was planning for more investment in this part of Springfield, not less, right? Right. Four years ago, there were plans for a $20 million store to be built just south of I-70. But then nationally, many groceries failed and Kroger changed course dramatically. It slashed its store construction budget by two-thirds, then doubled investment in in-store data collection where they expect $400 million in additional margin in two years With five stores in Springfield at the time, they cut plans to build a new store and closed another store on North Limestone Street. Then came the January 31st announcement about this most recent closing. People are describing this now as a gut punch to the city. Yes, and especially to the city's south side. Other groceries, including Three Kroger's, are four to five miles away from the area. It's a pressing problem for those without cars. People in the area are left with convenience stores that have higher prices and less healthful selections. So what's been the community's reaction? There's been a real outcry. The city assembled a group of organizations, including the NAACP. Governor Mike DeWine and U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown also got involved in negotiations with Kroger. As a result, the company decided to donate the building and the land, along with the freezers and coolers, to the city. It also agreed to contribute $50,000. Some will support shuttle service for those without transportation. The rest of the money will go to the food bank to help it respond. These were significant wins. So, Tom, what are the chances that a new grocery store might come into South Springfield? That's unlikely, given the state of the grocery industry right now. In the meantime, the city is going to use the old Kroger as a staging ground for food bank services. The food bank is going to step up deliveries to the area. But the community really is facing an urgent time, and there are worries that there will be cuts coming to programs to help the poor. Well, thanks a lot for this story, Tom. You're
0: welcome, Jason. Just wish I had better news. WISO News Director Jason Saul talking with Clark County reporter Tom Stafford. Well, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley delivered her State of the City address on Wednesday morning. Over the course of a half hour, Whaley made numerous references to the tribulations of 2019, the KKK rally, Memorial Day tornadoes, and the mass shooting that left nine dead. Yet, the mayor's focus was on what Daytonians accomplished together in the aftermath of those tragic events. We wanted to play some of the address for you today. Here is Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley on Wednesday.
7: All of us in Dayton have a story of how we heard about the shooting on August 4th. Some saw the terrible news as they awoke to Sunday morning's news or social media posts. Others received frantic texts from friends and family members checking in on their safety. Some heard the sounds of gunshots down the street. Several moments are seared into my memory from last year, and I suspect that is true for many of us. The eerie silence following the roar of tornadoes. The rising anger at strangers coming to our city to try to inflict hatred and fear. The sickening news that senseless violence had been taken had taken another young person too soon there were these tragic moments but there were also moments of incredible beauty strangers hugging one another in, on 5th street a young family showing up at a fire station with pallets of water hundreds of people standing in the cold to pay respects to a fallen hero with one crisis after another 2019 was certainly the most challenging year I have faced as your mayor. When the news broke last spring that a Ku Klux Klan-affiliated group planned a rally in downtown Dayton, many people felt anger and pain that such an overt display of hate could show up on our doorstep. But Daytonians would not let hate win. The Dayton United Against Hate campaign sprung up, giving people the opportunity to share our values Respect, diversity, and inclusion. People organized events in peaceful opposition with attendance far greater than at the hate rally. The day passed without incident. Not a single arrest or citation despite significant tension downtown. As the New York Times reported the next day, hate comes to Dayton, and Dayton unites against it. The racist group was from out of town, but their presence required us to reckon with problems that are distinctly our own. Dayton is still too segregated and too unequal. African Americans have been systematically denied access to the same opportunities as white people here in Dayton and around in our country. And although the hate group's rally was deeply painful... It requires all of us to look at how systemic racism continues to play out in our community, especially people like me that do not face racial discrimination in our own lives. I will not claim that we have solved these problems or that we even know how to, but I am encouraged by the many people in all corners of our city that are keeping this conversation alive even past the immediate crisis of a hate rally. We have much work to do to make sure Dayton is more equitable for all of our residents, and I am committed to doing that work. Now, just two days after the hate group rally left town, a different kind of crisis swept in. A series of tornadoes ripped through the region, leaving a trail of destruction in Dayton and surrounding communities. Even before the sun came up, Daytonians got to work taking care of their neighborhoods. The Dayton Fire Department visited 5,600 properties for search and rescue operations. Given the level of destruction, it is incredible that there were so few injuries and no direct loss of life. Once again, Dayton stood together. Churches and nonprofits were overwhelmed with the amount of food, water, and clothing donations. Businesses like Tanks Bar and Grill, forced to close with the water outage, shifted to making peanut butter sandwiches for victims and first responders instead. Fewer people checked into shelters than expected, likely because friends and families took in those displaced by the storm. And relief efforts only grew as time went on. Groups like the Living City Project, who I see here today, where's Living City? I saw them earlier. Wave your hand. Yeah. Organized massive cleanups with over 3,000 people volunteering on a single day. Businesses like Hart Mercantile, who I see right there next to uh, the Living City, uh, used their large social media following to share information about where help was most needed. Dozens of nonprofit organizations and faith groups stepped in to help connect people with temporary housing. What amazed me most about Dayton's response to the tornadoes was that no one was really directing any of this. Daytonians didn't wait to be told what to do or how they should help. They just helped. That's what makes our community great. No one in Dayton looks for permission to help a neighbor in need. This was especially true in the Oregon District. Throughout the summer, people and businesses in the district help stand up against hatred and clean up from tornadoes. The Oregon District is the heart of our community. No matter what neighborhood you live in, the Oregon District is still your place. We may not all spend time in the same establishments, but you can be sure you'll bump into Daytonians from all walks of life on Fifth Street. That is why the attack was particularly cruel. The Oregon District is our place. And in an instant, it felt like it had been ripped away from us. But then, just hours after the shooting, somehow the Oregon District was ours again. Thousands of people packed Fifth Street to hold on to their friends and neighbors. We prayed together for those we had lost and the countless people grieving them. We hugged neighbors and friends and strangers. We sang. We demanded that this never be allowed to happen again. I looked at all of the faces in the crowd from the stage, and what I saw made me stronger. In your faces, I saw terrible sorrow, but I also saw incredible resolve. Something unthinkable had happened to all of us, but we were not going to let that make us afraid. In the days after the shooting, the Oregon District was once again transformed by the small acts of kindness that popped up everywhere. Homemade memorials in front of Ned Peppers, musicians wherever they could find sidewalk space, small notes with words of encouragement on shop windows. And then, just a few weeks later, tens of thousands of people came out to support the victims and their families at Gym City Shine. Our community has responded to all of these events of last year with so much courage, grit, and resiliency. It has been simply amazing to see so much beauty from our response. Dayton has done what Dayton does best. We took care of each other.
0: Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley. Later in her State of the City address this past week, she announced a new campaign in the weeks ahead that would build on the community's resilience, including a website, DaytonStronger.org. It'll feature resources and organizations that have grown out of the response to last year's emergencies. Whaley also noted several other incidents in her call to confront gun violence. She also talked about the killing of Dayton Police Detective George Del Rio, saying that even in his death, Detective Del Rio managed to showcase the best of our community and she cited a plaque that had rested on his desk that read courage being scared to death but saddling up anyway. You can listen to the mayor's entire state of the city address on our website at wyso.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. Laura Lenick is a soil scientist and the author of Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate. She says climate change isn't a calling out, it's a calling in for all of us to pull together. County Lines producer Renee Wild talked with Lenick before her keynote speech at the Ohio Ecological Food and Farm Association's conference in Dayton. The event's theme was A Climate for Change.
5: I spent Valentine's Day learning about resilience agriculture at the Dayton Convention Center. Throughout the day, I asked convention goers what that term meant to them.
7: I guess what comes to mind is adaptable to everything and how we interact with the ecosystem to grow food, I think, um, needs to be, yes, resilient.
5: (laughs) That's Kelly. She's a member of the Ohio Ecological Food and Farm Association.
8: I'm a
7: farmer, too. Uh, Right now, I have Icelandic sheep doing a little bit of mushrooms, looking to wild, cultivate some stuff in the forest. So stuff like reishi mushrooms and um, ginseng, perhaps.
5: Kelly's waiting with a trio of friends to hear Laura Lennick. She's the rock star of social scientist. I talked with Lennick earlier in the day, and she said that resilience agriculture is not just about being able to bounce back after tough times. It's about healthy food systems and healthy rural communities that can bounce forward with the changing climate. A resilient
8: food system will be regional, so we'll think about how can we create mutually beneficial, reciprocal, respectful relationships not just between the people in the food system, but between the people and the land and between elements on the land. And then the final rule of resilience is that the food system is set up to accumulate wealth in the region so that that wealth is controlled by the community and the community has benefit of that wealth to help them innovate, to help them recover when there is damage and to um, help them maintain
5: their well-being over time. Lennox says to fight climate change, our power lies as consumers.
8: In the last 10 years around this idea of climate change, we've, we've had a lot of fingers pointed at us. Yes, we have been part of the problem, but we are also a very powerful solution. A big part of my work is actually looking at that bigger picture. How the way we eat fuels climate change, how the way we eat can help us solve climate change and how the way we eat reaches all the way back to the farm and that we all need to be part of the solution, not just farmers. Long story short,
5: Carol Golan, the executive to to director the of OFA, introduces Lenick in to a Aurora, packed theater. And
8: that's why we so I, I hope I have painted for you a picture of what I think of as an intellectual unicorn As we face these difficult and troubling challenges and uncertain times ahead of us, more than ever, we need thinkers like Laura.
5: (laughs) Lennick ends her speech with a heartfelt nod to a tool that she uses to fight climate change every day, Grounded Hope.
8: Grounded Hope is the belief that in order to create the future that you desire, you have to be part of creating that. Turns out Grounded Hope is very much a community-based thing. You get together with others, you agree on the desired future, and you start to head that way together. People ask me often, how can I do this work? And how can you be so positive with this work? And the truth is, I get into some pretty dark places every now and then. Some pretty dark places. And I didn't have the word for what I do and what we do as a community. I didn't have a word for it. But now I do.
5: Laura Lenick is currently writing a new book called Opportunity and Change, Resilience Thinking for Small Business. For County Lines on WYSO, Renee Wild, Montgomery County.
0: County Lines is made possible by a grant from Ohio Humanities. This story and others you'll hear today was created at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. On the Washington Mall, just south of the Black Granite Vietnam Wall, there's a statue of a wounded soldier surrounded by three nurses. The Vietnam Women's Memorial tells the story of some 11,000 uniformed women who served in Vietnam. Today on Veterans Voices, we hear from Army veteran Susan Wambach of Washington Township as she talks to her wife, Renee Clevenger.
1: When I joined the military, I was a nursing student at... This is always funny. Lily Jolly School of Nursing in Houston, <laughs> Texas. And so we were known as the Jolly Dollies. What made
8: you join the military?
1: After I finished one year of nursing school, there was a uh, recruiter whose name was Major Edith Knox, and she uh, came to recruit. And so uh, so I joined it to see other people. And to to see the world.
8: When you signed up, what was your age at that
1: time? I was um, 20 because my parents had to sign um, because I wasn't 21. Although what's interesting is men could sign when they were 18 without their parents' uh, approval. So inequality was always part of the military and unfortunately (laughs) continues to be. Tell me
8: about some of your memorable experiences, like most difficult.
1: So when I was in the um, ER, and so there was one particular morning when the casualties – for some reason – They had body bags instead of casualties that came to the hospital. The
8: soldiers were in the body bags. So
1: they're dead. They were already dead, which normally didn't come to the hospital. Okay. They normally went to graves registration, which was a different place, but they needed that helicopter. So they then took the body bags and put them uh, in what we call the library, which was a room that had a few medical books, hardly any but a few, and it was a line of um, cement um, on the ground, and it was very slick, and I remember going through the library between the ER and pre-op and having to jump over those body bags, and that was a uh, recurring dream or nightmare that I had for a very long time. When
8: you came home, what was society's reaction to your participation in the war?
1: Uh, At that time, the United States had not figured out not to blame the soldier, but to blame the government for being in an unnecessary war. We've kind of figured that out now better, I think, but... um, I went to the 1994 dedication of the Women's Memorial, Vietnam Memorial. And it was really the first time that I really felt thanked for my service.
0: That was Army veteran Susan Wombach and her wife Renee Clevenger. This conversation took place at WISO as part of StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Wright-Pack Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was created by Katari Costa and Will Davis. We'll wrap up today's WISO Weekend with the best of Dayton Youth Radio, and we're featuring a story that originally aired in 2016 when Deontay McGlown was a junior at the Dayton Early College Academy. It's about his experience coming out in high school. Here's Project Coordinator Basim Blunt to introduce the story.
4: Dayton Youth Radio allows teens to talk about the issues they care about. We hear them trying to figure out what life is all about. Maybe you're listening to this story with your teenager. We hope this series will open dialogue and create conversation with the young people in our lives. Sex is a topic that may be difficult for some adults and teenagers to talk about at home. This next Youth Radio feature is about this topic. It's from Deontay McLown, and it's entitled, Breaking the Silence. He wrote and recorded his essay while he was at school.
3: Let me tell you a little about myself. I'm 17 years old and a junior in high school. I was born at Miami Valley Hospital. in Dayton, Ohio. ADHD, ADD, and OCD runs in my family. <laughs> the doctor says I have anger issues, depression, anxiety, and severe stress. Sometimes I wonder if these disorders are caused by my living environment. I live with my mom, younger brother, and younger cousin. I never really had a father figure in my life. He was here and there when I was around four, then he wasn't. I had another father figure, my godfather, Ren. but he wasn't around either. My story is about being accepted by family members, loved ones, and society, knowing my sexuality and loving myself enough to let the world know. For this story, I plan on interviewing my mom, Liana, Why did I plan on interviewing my mom? Because she's my mother. She's the reason I am able to breathe and live. She takes care of me. She is my mother and my father. Her opinion matters in my life. I was going to interview my mother, but it didn't happen, so I only interviewed myself. When I came out, most people were accepting and gave me a sense of relief. Eventually, everyone was okay with it, except my mom. At first, I didn't really understand why she wasn't okay with me being gay. In my mind, I thought, I'm still your son. Still the same kid from years ago. Still a part of you. She eventually told me part of the reason is because she doesn't want me to get hurt. She thinks being a young, gay male puts me as a target. But what I want to say to her is that I'm still your son and doesn't feel good when you ignore me. This has been a heavy burden on me. My mom and I don't see eye to eye about me and sometimes it's hurtful and it's painful and it causes really bad depression at home. For me, in the beginning, I didn't have anyone to talk to. I kept this all to myself when I first came out, but eventually I found one person, then another, and then more. Some were accepting, some weren't. Some got over it, some still don't. I hope that other teens that are listening have the courage to find someone who they can talk to, and if you're not ready to come out, you should at least find one other person that you can talk to Just one person caring can change everything. Doing this story made me me proud to be who I am, whether society, family, or loved ones accept me or not. So once again, let me tell you who I am. I am a young African-American gay male, and I am proud of who I am, and I am strong, and nobody can tell me otherwise. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Deontay McGlown.
4: That was Breaking the Silence by Deontay McGlown. He's a junior at Dayton Early College Academy. To learn more about Dayton Youth Radio, visit wyso.org. Special thanks to Ann Rasmussen at DECA. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Project Coordinator Basine Blunt.
0: That story originally aired in 2016, and you can find more great segments from Tate Youth Radio on our website at WYSO.org. That's it for this edition of YSO Weekend on WYSO. I'm Jerry Kenny. We'll be back next Sunday morning at 10. Coming up now at 10.30, it's Vic McCunis with the Book Nook.